Almighty Father God, you alone are the Lord, the I am, the eternal, good, and wise God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for gathering us here this morning in your wisdom. Thank you for gathering us around your wise and perfect word. Thank you for reminding us this week that you alone are wise and we are not. Lord, grant us, I pray, faith in Christ this morning. That we may repent of our excuses for faithlessness. Lord, grant us hope for heaven this morning. That we might turn from our despair of rejection from this world. Lord, grant us courage this morning. That we might stand strong when the brokenness of this world and the opposition to our faith comes like incessant waves of doubt and discouragement. In these times, Lord, would you, in your grace, fix our faith on Jesus Christ, who is the I Am Lord, our wise deliverer of our souls. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. When we begin to think of genealogies, a good place to start may be for us to think of a modern-day group photograph. Uh, They didn't have pictures during the time of the Bible. And so when they wanted to have a group photograph, they listed genealogies. They're difficult for us to understand. But let's say there's a, uh, there's a class, a picture of a, of a, a particular uh, class of students, maybe a dozen or so, young men and women, and, um, and you see that picture. Now, the reason you would look at that picture and the reason you would look at it carefully is that you might have a loved one that's in that, that picture. If you did not have a loved one in that picture, you would look at it with quite a different view, wouldn't you? Not really caring. I remember the photograph that we had in our home when I was a child of my, my father. It was actually a picture of the 82nd Airborne Division that he was a part of. And I remember looking at that photograph and trying to find him. And uh, he was younger, and uh, it was difficult, but uh, I found him. And that was a very precious picture to me, obviously one that I continue to remember. Why? Not because of all the other men that were in the 82nd Airborne, but because I saw my father there. Few of us have those kinds of photographs and pictures. Some of us, many maybe, have yearbooks of high school or college graduations. Now, I would dare say that most, if not all of you, do not have your high school or college yearbook as a centerpiece on your coffee table at your house right now. Uh, The yearbook has found its way into the closet or maybe in a box that's been shuffled off to the Salvation Army or somewhere, but um, some of you may know where it is. Others know that it is somewhere, but it's not in a prominent place in your home. Why? Because the last thing you want to do when you bring friends and loved ones and neighbors over is to open up your yearbook and share that with them. They could care less, except for the one or two pictures they see of you with longer hair, probably. 
In that regard, we also approach genealogies in Scripture. We see very little reason for them. We don't understand them. There's a lot of very difficult names to pronounce. And yet, we are faced with a lot of genealogies. In fact, the majority of the genealogies is in Genesis. There are several of genealogies in Genesis. There's a genealogy here in Exodus. And then all of us love genealogies for this one reason. If we are behind in our scripture reading plan for the year and we get to 1 Chronicles, we know we've got some clean sailing for about seven chapters of 1 Chronicles because there's nothing but genealogies. And, and you and I don't read over those as devotionally and carefully as maybe we should. So this morning we're going to be looking at a short but significant genealogy. And I want to give you just in way of bullet points, three reasons why I think, and these are, these are not, there's, there's, I'm sure there's more, but these are reasons that as I thought about what are the significance of genealogies, and specifically as I was thinking about um, us looking at the genealogies in the book of Genesis that we did when we were going through the book of Genesis, what are the three significant reasons why genealogies are important for us as we look at them in Scripture today and that maybe we can see the value of them? Three things I want you to notice real quick. First is that genealogies help us see how intergenerational God's plan is for our lives. God's plan and promises are intergenerational. We, we wouldn't say this out loud, but we live as if God started his epic plan for all things when we were born and that there's not going to be a whole lot going to be happening after we die. We live that way. Genealogies help us see that people come and go, and God just keeps doing what he's doing, and, and that people are vapors. They're blip on the screen, and we are too. Genealogies help us see in Scripture that God is faithful and true. People come and go. Families come and go. God's plan and promises are intergenerational. That's the first reason genealogies, I believe, help us today specifically because we need to hear that. We need to know that God is doing more than just dealing with our problems that we're dealing with this week, but he's doing something far greater and grandeur. Number two, genealogies help us see how personal God's plan is, how personal God's plan and promises are. When we look at genealogies, we hear names of real people. We hear names of fathers and wives and children, and we read over those sometimes and forget that those children had colds. Those dads had bad days. Those wives had fears and concerns about what their, their life would look like in the future and whether they were going to ever settle down and whether things were ever going to become less hectic. These people in the Scripture are not um, extraordinary superheroes, they're people like us. They have names and families and issues that they're dealing with, and God is working in the midst of those personal, everyday lives. So not only do genealogies help us see the intergenerational side of things, but it also helps us see that God's very personal. He works with people and families and individuals that have names and they have real lives. Thirdly, and one that maybe you have not thought about, hopefully this will be an encouragement to you, genealogies help us see how Christocentric the Bible is. Genealogies help us see how Christocentric the Bible is. For all of the space taken up in the Old Testament for genealogies, there are two places in the New Testament where there are genealogies, and they end at Christ. 
There are no more genealogies after the two genealogies in the Gospels that we have. Why? Because the genealogies have this aim, and that is this, that all things are tied to Christ. (laughs) And so the genealogies remind us that the Scriptures are Christocentric. They have their aim and their end in Christ. All of these genealogies, even when Phil was reading through this, some of you were able to recognize um, the name Nashon. You recognize that in verse uh, 23 of chapter 6. It says, um, and the sister of Nashon. Nashon I recognize from the begat song that we sing at Christmas that's in the Gospel of Matthew in that genealogy. In other words, these genealogies are all connected together for this purpose, and that is for us to see that Christ is the aim and the end of all things, all of our lives, all of our interdependence, all of our living and doing the things that we do generationally is centered on Christ. So these three reasons, I think, are good for us to not just take these genealogies, as some churches and pastors may do, and say, you know, these are a lot of names. Let's jump over that and go somewhere else or lump it in with some other passage and try to do something else with it. This morning, we're going to be looking at this genealogy. And in fact, we'll find that a genealogy is really the point of the passage this morning. So let's turn now and look at our passage, verses uh, 10 through 30. And I want us to notice, um, as we notice this passage, the particular structure of our text this morning. The particular structure of our text. Now, it is a very common literary device in Hebrew scriptures. So our Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew. And we've got to realize that though we, all of us, many of us, have either a device or a Bible sitting in front of us, and we're able to look at the page as someone is reading it to us, that's a wonderful advantage that we have that most in the Old Testament times did not have. In other words, the majority of what people understood about their scriptures, they only heard. In other words, when we read our Bibles out loud and you're listening to that, that's the primary way that God's people were able to understand God's word is by hearing it. And so the cadence and the the way that the flow of the passage goes, if you're reading it in the actual Hebrew, you'll hear that it kind of has a... It has a cadence to it. It has a rhythm to it. And much of the Hebrew scriptures can be understood as, as you're listening to them um, um, being read in Hebrew. Even if, And I don't know a lot of Hebrew, but I'm able to know enough of it where if you're listening through it, you can hear that, that regular kind of rhyme that's taking place within that. This is a particular literary device that's helping them to remember what this passage is saying. And it's a literary device that is very common, but not very common for us as, as, as those who read the Scriptures and as us, those of us who are Americans specifically, as we're not familiar with this, this understanding. So this particular structure is like this. There's a name for it. I'm not going to go into that detail. I'll give it to you if you want to know the technical name for it. But this is how we're going to describe it this morning that may be helpful for us. The point is this, is that this structure is like a, a target or a bullseye. Okay, And it's got an outer ring. And then it's got a, a middle ring, and then it's got the, the, the bullseye, which is the dot right in the middle. So we've got a, a target or bullseye with, with, with two rings and then the, the center, which is the, the, the bullseye that we have. Our text this morning is going to run along those kinds of lines. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. The beginning of our text, let's notice in verse 10 through 12, ends in verse 12 with this, For I am of uncircumcised lips. 
Notice at the very end of our text in verse 30, but Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. In other words, the point that's being made is this outer circle of the target and the point that's being made at the beginning of our text and the point that's being made at the end of our text is the same point. And then we go to the next ring of our target. And that next ring in our target is in verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge but the people of Israel, uh, about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh the king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Notice with me at the end in verse, uh, Exodus chapter 6, verses 26 and 27, these are the Aaron and Moses. So you see there the Aaron and Moses in verse 13. And we see there in verse 26, Aaron and Moses is being mentioned. And they're mentioned several times for the very purpose of God calling his people out. So this second ring in the target is verse 13 and then verses 26 and 27. And you see what's happening is, is they're, 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 they're moving inward. And then the point, the aim, the main emphasis for the text as, the, as Moses was writing this is the middle of the target. That's what all targets, the middle is the, is the main point. And so the middle of that target is the genealogy. And in the middle of this genealogy is verse 20. In verse 20, Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Okay, Aaron and Moses is at the very center of this target, and it's the very center of the bullseye. So, <clears throat> how, do we, how do we understand this outline-wise? You have no idea how you're going to do this outline. Let me, let me help you here. Um, it's three points, and what we're going to do is if you can imagine that target or that bullseye and start at the top of that bullseye or that target, and we're going to draw a line all the way to the bottom of that bullseye and target. So we're starting at the top, and we're going all the way to the bottom. In other words, we're going to work from the top ring, go to the second ring. We're going to look at the bullseye, and then we're going to go back to that second ring, and then we're going to go to that last ring, and we're going to work all the way through that way. So let me give you the points this way. Point number one, uncircumcised lips. Point number one, uncircumcised lips. And this is Exodus chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Uncircumcised lips, Exodus chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Point number two, an urgent charge. An urgent charge. This is Exodus 6, verse 13. Exodus 6, 13. Then point number three is an unlikely lineage. Unlikely lineage. Lineage. This is Exodus 6, verses 14 through 25. It's basically the genealogy there. So it's an unlikely lineage. And now, this is where we're going to go back. Now we're moving past the bullseye. And this is point 2B, okay? Because it's really the same point. It's actually an urgent charge, but it's on the back side of that. So point 2B is Exodus 6, verses 26 through 27. And then point 1B is uncircumcised lips again, and it's Exodus 6, verses 28 through 30. I hope you understand that. Because this is really the, the, this is the structure of the text here. And so it goes 1, 2, 3, and 3 is the bullseye, and then 2B and 1B goes back over um, 1 and 2 points again. Okay, Maybe it will make sense as we go along. If you have any questions, we can work through it um, as, as we go. So let's notice that... Not only is this a unique day because it's a genealogy that we're working through, but I think this is the first time I've ever preached a sermon where the alliteration started with you. 
which is pretty impressive. So, nonetheless, we'll see how this works. Number one, the uncircumcised lips. Uncircumcised lips. Verses 10 through 12. Catches up to speed here. Moses came to Pharaoh. He told the Israelites, the Lord's going to deliver you. They were excited. They were worshiping God. Everything was great. He comes to Moses and Aaron, then goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, this isn't going to happen. Not only is it not going to happen, but Pharaoh begins to flex his muscles and says, not only is it not going to happen, but I'm going to take away straw and your brick quota needs to remain the same. And the people of God began to despair because the brick quota now was was the same. Their straw was not being given to them. And so life was very difficult for God's people. So not only did Pharaoh say no, but now God's people are against Moses. Moses now has no friends. And Moses basically says at the end of chapter 5, verse 23, For since I came to Pharaoh to speak to you in your name, he has done evil to this people, meaning God's people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses is in despair. He's overwhelmed by the struggle of trying to be faithful, and yet it made things worse, not better, not only for him, but also for the people of God. The Lord then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, says, Moses, first I want you to understand what I have already done, what I've already said I will do. He says he will appear, verse 3. He, will, he also is established, verse 5. He has heard, in verse 5 at the end, he will remember his covenant for his people. Then God says, now I want you to go to the people of Israel, and I want, to let, I want you to let them know, Moses, what I'm going to do. And so in verse 6, the Lord tells Mo, or Moses goes to him and says, the Lord says that he will bring them out. From their burdens, he will deliver them. He will redeem them. Verse 7, I will take them to be my people. Verse 7, I will be your God. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land. And then finally in verse 8, I will give it to you as a possession. And then he ends by saying, I am the Lord. And then God's people, because they were so broken in spirit, heart with their harsh slavery, they did not believe. Moses and this word that he had from the Lord. So Moses has no results, no help, no good. Everything is bad. Moses is sitting there in despair. Verse 10, notice what our text says. This is talking about the uncircumcised lips. This is point number one. So, in the midst of this, the Lord said to Moses, Go in and talk to Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. And so we have the Lord coming back to Moses and saying, Though the Israelites are not believing because their slavery is so harsh and their hearts are so broken because of the dismay that really Moses put them in because now their straw has been taken away and they're having to have more labor than usual. The Lord says, all right, this is what I want you to do. Here's the plan. Go back to Pharaoh and redo what you just did. In other words, he's saying, go and tell Pharaoh again to let the people of Israel go out of this land. Verse 12, Moses responds, much like we would respond in this kind of scenario. And Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened. 
Very good point. Moses is making a very good point here. The people of Israel has not listened. These are Moses' people. These are the people that are supposed to be delivered. These are the ones that are going to have the greatest advantage from this delivery. These are the ones that are going to have the greatest benefit from the promise that God has remembered his covenant. And Moses' words are this. If the Israelites, who are the greatest benefactors of this promise, have not listened to me, according to verse um, 12, he says, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? In other words, he's saying there's no way. There's no earthly way. There's no logical way that Pharaoh, who's going to be the one who has the most to lose by this deliverance, is going to listen to me if even the ones who have the most to gain from this deliverance aren't listening to me. And then he gives God a reason why he believes that this deliverance isn't working out that well. And his point basically is this, Lord, you've, you've picked the wrong guy. Now we know Moses has done this before. But Moses did this previous, prior to going and talking to Pharaoh. Now he's talked to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has denied his request. And now Moses is singing the same song. He's coming back and saying, look, I am a man of uncircumcised lips. What does this phrase mean? What is he talking about here? Well, as we look at this phrase and look through Scripture, we find specifically that it, it very, could, very well could be, and probably is, it probably means that he had a speech impediment of some sort. He was unable to speak. He physically had something wrong that caused him to not be able to speak well. In other words, Moses is saying, I'm not able with the instrument of my mouth to be able to do what you called me to do. It's funny, my voice is cracking just as I'm saying that. <clears throat> May the Lord use that. So, it's the it's illustration of the point. We know that earlier in Exodus 4, Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not an eloquent, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So is this what he's speaking of when he speaks of having an uncircumcised lips? Very, very well could be. The second thing that it could possibly be is this. It could mean that Moses was unworthy or unfit to deliver this message, to be the spokesperson for God on behalf of God's people. We know this is really the scenario that we found ourselves in in Exodus chapter 24 through 26, that interesting scenario where Moses refused to circumcise his son and Zipporah, his wife, ended up doing it for him. And he was almost to the point of death in that regard. The whole point of that text was that Moses had not, um, had not done what was necessary, what was righteous, what was good. In other words, he was unworthy to, to, to go and be the, the man who would tell God's people that God would deliver them if even his own son did not bear the sign of the covenant. We know this is exactly the case in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah is being called into ministry, and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a what? A man of unclean lips. He's saying, I'm unworthy to do this thing that you've called me to. Very well could have been that very thing. Moses was very, very, very aware of the fact that he was not righteous enough, that he was not the man that God needed him to be. He not only had a speech impediment, more than likely, but he also was one who was not worthy or unfit for 
this calling that God had given to him. These are the reasons, this uncircumcised lips that, God, that Moses was giving to God of why he thought things were failing. Things weren't going along as they should. Thirdly, and finally, what does uncircumcised lips mean? Thirdly, basically means that Moses is basically stating the fact that he's being unsuccessful. He's being unsuccessful. In other words, uncircumcised in this regard has been used throughout Scripture um, later on as well to speak of the fact that the, the, the um, not suitable to fulfill the function by which it was intended. In other words, he's saying my lips are not suitable for the, for the function or the task that which you called me. It's, it's, it's not willing to be able to do that. We find in Deuteronomy 10.16, it says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. And be not stubborn any longer. In other words, he's saying, if you circumcise your heart, your heart then will be malleable in God's hands and not stubborn and obstinate. So you see how that understanding of uncircumcised or or, uh, a circumcised heart is one that's malleable. Uncircumcised means it's not malleable. It's not useful. The heart isn't able to be used by God. We find in Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 10, there's other references as well. But Deuteronomy 10.16 is about the heart being circumcised. Jeremiah 6.10 talks about the ears being circumcised. And it says this, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? In other words, he's calling them to hear. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. In other words, the instrument of the ear cannot do what it's called to do. Why? Because it's uncircumcised. It's not useful. It's not fit. To fulfill, it's unsuccessful in fulfilling the function that it is intended to fulfill. And so we see that this word for uncircumcised is used throughout Scripture to speak of instruments that are not able to do what they're, they're made to do. Could it be that Moses here is saying that his lips are not able to do what God's called them to do? He's, in other words, he's saying, I'm unsuccessful, and so I need to pack it up and walk away. I need to leave, Lord. In other words, I believe that he's speaking of all of these things. He, say, he not only has a speech impediment, but he's saying, I'm unworthy to come before the, uh, Pharaoh and to do this work on your behalf. And on the top of that, I'm unsuccessful. My lips are uncircumcised, meaning that I, I'm unable to do this. I'm not, unable to fulfill the task that you have called me to. So in that regard, Moses is telling the Lord, Lord, you are not wise. But I think I know better than you, Lord. I mean, all these Reasons why I should not be the one that you're sending. So the uncircumcised lips, verses 10 through 12. Point number two, the urgent charge. The urgent charge. Notice with me, verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. So in verses 10 through 12, we have Moses. In verse 13, we have Moses and Aaron. Notice this is exactly how it's going to work just a minute later. When we go through the next few points, we're going to move from Moses in verses 10 through 12 to Moses and Aaron in verse 13. And then we're going to look at Moses and Aaron in verses 14 through 25. And then we're going to see in verse 26, notice what it says in verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses. It's flipped around. And then again, we're going to go back in verse 28 to look at Moses again. So you see it's, 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 it's going in and then coming back out again. So notice with me in verse 13. Moses gives his estimation of why he thinks things are not going like they should go. He's a man of uncircumcised lips. Verse 13. 
The Lord never lets us grovel in our assumptions. Once we get finished complaining, the Lord says this, But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And what was that charge? To bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This charge is emphasized here because it's not a suggestion and it's not a request. The Lord says, okay, okay, whatever you want to think. But the Lord said, spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge. In other words, he ordered them. He commanded them. He directed them. This idea of charge in the Hebrew speaks of an authoritative directive. It's saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you go back to Pharaoh. I'm charging you to go back to Pharaoh. Here's the Shane Waters translation of charge. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Have you ever, maybe you did this mentally or maybe you've done this physically before. It's very helpful. Have you ever been confronted with a particular verse in your Bible that you just can't get out of your head after you've read it and you understand it in context and you see very clearly that this is what the Lord is clearly saying in his Bible. And you write that verse at the top of a piece of paper. And then underneath it, you write all of the reasons why that's a bad idea. I mean, all the reasons why this is not going to be good. These are the people that are going to hate me. These are the struggles and difficulties that I'm going to have to go through. These are the inconvenience that I'm going to have to take in order to do this, what's being asked. These are all the this and this. And, and you list your entire thing, and there's not one good reason to do what that verse says at the top of that page. And yet... The Lord, by His Spirit, is saying, do it anyway. In other words, brothers and sisters, sometimes it requires sacrifice in order for us to be faithful. Sometimes God's Word, when we look at it and we see, this is what God is telling me to do, there is always going to be long lists of reasons why that's not a good idea. And yet the Lord says, do it anyway and trust me. He's proved faithful over and over again. Now, I'm not giving you a license to be arrogant or to be unloving in the obedience of that verse, right? So whatever that verse may be at the top of that page, sometimes we get, we get the idea, well, these are all the reasons, so I'm just going to be arrogant and obnoxious about doing this, and whoever I've met tick off in the process of following God's word, then that's their problem. No, that's not how God calls us to do that, right? We, I promise you that obedience to the Lord, is not arrogant, unloving obedience, okay? So I don't want to send you off to basically make everybody in your family mad at you. But I will say this, that if you've ever been confronted with a verse in your Bible, it says, this is what God says that we need to do. I mean, it's so clear here. And I don't understand all the different verses on all these other sides, but I understand that what this is saying is this. What are other good people going to think? What about this? What about that? What is it going to cost? What about all these other things? At the end of the day, the verse outweighs all of those. The Lord says, do it anyway. And the Lord is faithful to care for his people. There's been times over and over and over again where I have seen what Scripture has said for me to do, and nothing in me wants to do it. 
because every scenario I play out in my mind of how this is going to work out, it's going to just blow up in my face. And yet, on the other side of that obedience, the Lord has shown me how faithful he is. Sometimes it did blow up, okay? But on the other side of that, how faithful he is to produce fruit that I would have never imagined, except if I'd walked down that path and been faithful in that area. For some of you this morning, the passages you, you need to revel in, the passages you need to meditate on, is verse 13, where it says to Moses and Aaron, do it anyway. He charged them to go back to Pharaoh and to speak to Pharaoh. In other words, this isn't a request. This isn't a, an option for you. This is what I'm telling you to do. Do it anyway. So, this morning, as we consider this urgent charge, now we... Hopefully you're, you're looking at our passage and you're considering it and looking at it and you're saying, I still am not quite sure what the point is of the passage. Like we just talked about uncircumcised lips. We just talked about an urgent charge. God is telling Moses, go and talk to Pharaoh anyway, heir to Moses. But what really is the, what, what's happening here? Well, now we're going to get to the center of our passage, the bullseye, if you will, which is an unlikely lineage, and we're going to be talking through verses 14 through 25. This is point number three, 14 through 25, and we're going to consider this genealogy and really the point that Moses is trying to make by our text this morning, verses 10 through 30, is right here in this passage. <clears throat> we can get lost very easily in gene- genealogies. Let me assure you that we're not going to try to work through every name and then follow it through in Scripture. You can do that. You can actually look at each one of these names, do a search, and then find them elsewhere in Scripture and find out what happened to them. Um, This is a mixed bag of faithfulness and unfaithfulness right here, just like your family (laughs) and just like my family. Um, there's, There's an amazing amount of history that's involved in this. And when they read this, they understood names with families and situations and 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 they understood all these stories better than we do they knew their old testament bible better than we do and so when they hear the word reuben they understand stories that we don't necessarily understand so it may be helpful to get into this genealogy maybe sometime this afternoon and poke around and see if you can find some of these other names and find out what happened to them but if you would take your bible real quick and turn to exodus chapter 1 verse 1 exodus 1 verse 1 and we see that our our, this book, the book of Exodus, actually begins with all the children of Jacob. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Notice that the, there are actually 11 that are mentioned here, Reuben, Sibion, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph, which is the 12th of the tribes of Israel, or Jacob, Joseph was already in Egypt. So those are the 12 tribes. Turn back over to your Bible in chapter 6, verse 14. And notice that it begins with the same way that our passage began in verses 1 through 5 of Exodus 1. It says, these are the heads of the father's houses. And it's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. But notice what happens. The emphasis is, what I want you to see here, is that the emphasis is upon Levi, and specifically the Levitical tribe. So notice in verse 14, it says, These are the heads of houses of, uh, the heads of fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Israel and Jacob are the same person, two different names. That does make things complete, very confusing, but nonetheless. Um, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. 
Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. Verse 15, this is the second oldest son of Jacob or Israel, the sons of Simeon. And it goes through, and Jamiel, and I've always pronounced it, Mr. Phil pronounced it very Hebrew-like. I think, I don't know how he said it, but I always said Jamin, because I just think that's a real cool name to name your kid. But nonetheless, Jamin, um, Ohad, um, Jachin, Zohar, Shaul, and the son of the Canaanite women, these are the clans of Simeon. So we have the firstborn of Israel, or Jacob, the secondborn of Israel, or Jacob, in verse 15. And then we have in verse 16, these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Now notice, once we get there, it doesn't go through any of the other 12, 12 tribes of Israel. It stops there. It's basically showing you where does Levi fall, and then when it gets to Levi, which is this particular tribe or clan, then it starts working out who this Levite is. And so here we see that the sons of Levi, according to their generation, is Gershon, Kohath, and Miria. Or, uh, uh, Miria. I'm sure I'm pronouncing these wrong. But nonetheless, you can follow along with me in verse 16. Notice that Gershon is in verse 17, the sons of Gershon. Verse 18, the sons of Kohath. And then in verse 19, Miria, Mali, and Mushi. I don't know if she loved her children or not, but that's what she named them, Mali and Mushi, verse 19. So nonetheless, um, we got Gershon, Kohath, and Miria. This is back in verse th- uh, 16, and then they start working these out. Now, here's the point. Levi's not the firstborn, is he? No. He has no status. He's, in fact, if we had all 12 tribes of Israel here, he would get lost in the mix because he's the third in um, not a firstborn, not a preeminent, no, no status or prestige in any way. Levi falls three in for Isaac, or Israel's children. And then among Levi, he has children, Gershon, Kohath, and Miriah. And the second of them, again, not the firstborn, but the second, Kohath, if we find is the one in verse 18, the sons of Kohath, uh, um, the sons of Kohath are these. Amram, do you recognize that name? Amram, go down to verse 20. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. So do you see what they're doing? They're giving the, the line up, and then they're saying, and this is how Aaron and Moses were born. Aaron and Moses are brothers, and Aaron is older, Moses is the younger. And there's, the point here is this, is that just like you can go through here and you can't quite make out exactly where they are and what they're doing, it's because none of them are coming come in first place. There's no status. There's no prestige in their name. And yet they come about, and in verse 20, Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. And then it goes through and it starts laying out. Notice in verse 23, Aaron took as his wife, And it talks about Aaron's wife. And then turn with me in verse 25. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife, one of the daughters of Puriel, and she bore him Phinehas. And so here we're just going through and talking about specifically Aaron and the importance of Aaron. Here's the point I want us to make here in this particular passage. And it is this, that there was no status or prestige. There's no good reason for Aaron, in this case, and Moses, to be the people that God had called them to be, doing what God had called them to do. And here's the only reason they're doing it, because God charged them. God charged them. Looking through all the genealogy, there's no good reason for Moses and Aaron 
to be doing anything that they were called to do, except for the fact there's only one reason, and that is that God had called them to do it. They're unlikely heads of a home. In other words, they're a third end for Levite. They're unlikely clan. They're an unlikely tribe. And many of us to this day, because we've read our Old Testaments, know that Levi is a preeminent tribe in the Old Testament Scriptures. Why? Because God called him to be. God had called him to that task. God had put him in that place to do what God had called him to do. When Aaron and the Levites were... And the first hearers of this passage are the hearers that are the people that are going into the land of Egypt, are going into the land of promise, right? Remember, the people that are reading this or hearing this for the first time, Moses writes this, gives it to them, and then Joshua leads God's people into the promised land. But who are the, who's the tribe? What's the group of people that put their foot in the water that makes the water part, the Jordan part, so that they can actually enter into the promised land? What's the Levites? God had called this people, the Levites, to lead God's people into the very promised land. They are the the group of people that God has called to carry the ark through the wilderness, to set up and be responsible for the tabernacle, which we're going to spend a lot of time in at the end of Exodus, where Aaron would go before God with blood on behalf of a sinful people. The Levites were critical to who God's people were. They were people who would worship God. And they had all of this status and all of this standing. Why? Not because of any reason other than the fact that God had called them and charged them with this task. Joshua chapter 4 verse 9 says, And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they were there to this day. For the priest, the priests or the Levites, Bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. You see how absolutely vital. Long after Moses goes off the scene, the Levitical priesthood continues to lead God's people. How? In what way? Not only physically in the sense of into the promised land, but spiritually in the sense of keeping them before God himself where Moses was the one who delivered God's word to God's people, Aaron was the one who interceded on behalf of God's people. Don't we see, I hope you see, both of those are absolutely vital for deliverance. (laughs) We need to hear God's word, and we need to be brought before God. If we just hear God's word, we're we're, we're altogether condemned. We're, we're, We're undone. We're unable to know how can we have a relationship with this God. It required Aaron in the Levitical priesthood to say, we'll go before God on your behalf with blood so that you can have a relationship or have communion with this God. They were, it's not because of their firstborn status. We know it wasn't because of extraordinary obedience. Read through the rest of Exodus. It was actually Aaron that did the whole calf thing, right? It wasn't extraordinary obedience. It wasn't firstborn status. It was because God had called and charged them. And that's really the point that God's trying to make here. To God's people, in the book of Exodus, he's saying, the people that I have chose will be the ones that lead you. And what we're going to find is that this was a major point for Moses, who's the one who's writing the book of Exodus, 
Because over and over again in the book of Exodus and in Numbers, they're constantly being pushed against. Moses and Aaron, people are coming to them and saying, who gave you the authority? And over and over again, Moses and Aaron had to say, well, God did. Well, you're no better than anybody else. Moses and Aaron would say, well, yeah, you're right. We have no status, no standing, no geologic, no, no, no geology, or, um, 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 no status in way of our family and lineage. And yet, God has called us to be leaders in, our, in, our, in, our, in this tribe. So notice now that we see the emphasis of the genealogy. Look with me now at point 2B, if you will. We've moved down the bullseye. The first ring, the second ring, we talked about the bullseye, which is point number three. Now we're looking at the second, we're looking at the second ring again, an urgent charge. Notice the emphasis in verses 26 through 27. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt to their hosts. He says, These are the ones. Verse 27. It was they, both Aaron and Moses, who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron, do you see the emphasis here? The point is that there was no reason for them to have the status and the leadership position that they had, and yet these are the ones that God himself appointed to be the deliverers of God's people. It's interesting that it speaks of this Moses and this Aaron because in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching. Acts chapter 7, follow with me. Just, you don't have to turn there. Just write it down if you want and you can look at it later. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching and listen to what he says. Maybe you haven't seen this before. It was interesting as I looked at it. Stephen's preaching his sermon in Acts chapter 7 and this is how he begins. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the, right, at, at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Later on in Stephen's passage, because he's talking about the fact that the Israelites, God's people, have rejected his prophets all through the years. And it started with Moses that they rejected him. And then at the end of Stephen's sermon, right before they kill him, this is how Stephen turns the, the sermon. He says to the, to the Jews and the Israelites that he's preaching to in Acts chapter 7, You stiff-necked people, listen, uncircumcised in heart and ears... You always resisted the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of, here it is, the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He goes on and talks about the fact that you delivered this one up who's called the Son of Man. In other words, Stephen takes this theme in our passage here in Exodus 6. And he says, this Moses, this Moses, this Moses that God had called. And then he turns it and says, and you have rejected this Savior, Jesus Christ, 
just like you rejected Moses. It's amazing how Stephen used that very theme, that very understanding. Peter, earlier in the book of Acts, listen to what Peter says. It's amazing. Peter says earlier in the book of Acts, the sermon that he preaches right after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he says this, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, hear this, this Jesus is what our text says in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up. I'm not, I'm not saying, the, the text is saying this Jesus. I'm not adding that. <laughs> it, it, it's in the text. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all of us, therefore, brothers and sisters, know for certain this morning that God made the person Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom was crucified for our sins. In other words, what Aaron and Moses were doing, Moses was the proclaimer of God's word. Aaron was the priest before God that would bring blood on behalf of God's people. Jesus comes, and he is the Jesus, the Christ, the Lord, the I am God, who would deliver his people. In other words, the necessary object of our faith cannot be found in anything else other than the one that God has appointed to deliver us. Was there anything handsome or beautiful or extraordinary about Jesus that we could see him and think that he was the son of God? Was there anything that portrayed him? Was there anything in his line that caused us to think, wow, he's the preeminent one? Not at all. According to all of scripture, he was one who walked among us, who was like us in every way. And yet without sin. And God had appointed this one, Jesus Christ, this Jesus, to be the one that would be the necessary object of our faith that we might be delivered and freed from our sin. It's important for us to acknowledge that in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, God appointed his deliverers and there were no others. Moses and Aaron were the guys, and even though they kept getting pushed against and told, no, no, we're going to be leaders now, um, bad things happen to people, like the earth opening up and swallowing your whole family and then slamming closed if you went against Moses and Aaron and what their authority was, okay? There was horrible things that happened if you went against that. Brothers and sisters, I'm calling you today in this way, acknowledge and affirm that you do not create your own Savior, You do not make up your own salvation. You do not find for yourself your object of deliverance. No, there's only one, and it is this Jesus that we turn to and we find as our Savior. Finally, point 1B. Hopefully, you're understanding kind of where we're moving here. Point 1B, verses 28 through 30. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. See, that's the point. (laughs) 
That, that's what the Lord's trying to say. He says, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Do you see how ridiculous that request or that question is now? Do you see on the back side of this, we see to what degree how ridiculous this request is. This excuse that Moses was giving means nothing if the Lord is the I am Lord. Do it anyway. Go and tell Pharaoh that my people are to be delivered. Now Moses had a unique calling. That's what this passage is about. Aaron had a unique calling. This passage is talking about that. But I think the principle can be brought from this idea of Moses and Aaron as the authorities that God has used in the book of Exodus to our own lives today in a handful of ways. First, I want you to see that the, the place God has placed you in your family isn't important. Not many of you are related to Winston Churchill, right? I don't even want. I went to the websites to find out, like, genealogies and stuff, and I just went to see kind of what, there's a lot of them out there. It's amazing how many people spend time on those things. Um, I don't want to know. I'm scared to find out who my relatives are. Um, that, that would scare me. <clears throat> but God has put you in your family with your brothers and sisters, with your grandparents and with your relatives for your sanctification. Your life would not be better or more faithful if you had somebody else surrounding you. God in his wisdom has placed you where you are. And it's for your good. And God has called you to be a man or a woman living out the faith that only you can where you are. No one else can do, no one else can be and speak the promises and the precious treasures of Christ to your family members like you can and your neighbors like you can, and your co-workers like you can. You have been placed in a very unlikely, weird genealogy that you've never asked for, and yet here you are. And God says, I'm going to use it. Because I've called you to be right there where you are. And to be faithful. And have you ever come to the point where Moses had come and said, Lord, I'm tired of continuing to go back and to try to be faithful and to try to do what I need to do because you have not delivered me or your people at all. And I do it every day and I'm banging my head against the wall and it's just not working. It's not doing anything. Lord, there's all these real good reasons why you have called the wrong person to be where I'm at and doing the things I'm doing. And our God says, I am the Lord. And though you may think you're unable with a speech impediment like Moses had, though you may think you're unworthy, in other words, I need to clean up my life and be better or be more righteous or live better in order to be the voice that God has called me to be. Or maybe you think, you know what, my track record has proven that I've basically blown up every opportunity to be able to share Christ with my family and loved ones and friends because I haven't done it well and right. In fact, I've made things worse and not better. Welcome to the club that Moses is at the head of. And know that though you too may have uncircumcised lips, God has called you to this ridiculous task, this ridiculous responsibility, and that is to speak of Christ into the lives of the people that God's put around you. It may be your 
your two-year-old. And it may be your grandparent. It may be your neighbor or your coworker. The Lord says, I am the Lord, and I've placed you there. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul himself said this, the one who wrote most of our New Testament. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He wouldn't have made a very good preacher on television today, would he? Weakness, fear, and trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Notice, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Will you be faithful to acknowledge that God's placed you where he's placed you? He's given you the authority he's given you in your particular perspective realms and vocations. And what he's called you to do is to be faithful to speak a word of Christ. And know that though you have uncircumcised lips, he'll be faithful to deliver his people as he's called us to be faithful. Let us pray.